0: Just this evening before the class, before Arati, I was walking in Central Park and I had two distinguished visitors, a very senior devotees from um, Southern California, uh, John and his wife, Anne. And uh, uh, John was telling me about uh, uh, Houston Smith, how Houston Smith, the great scholar of comparative religion uh, and the author of that wonderful book, the world's religions, which was originally a little politically incorrectly named the religions of man. And then now a better name is the world's religions. So how did he come to Vedanta? Uh, he was introduced to these ideas um, as a scholar of religion by reading Gerald Hurd, who was at the trabuco Monastery, the Vedanta Society of Southern California. And then from Gerald Hurd, and also through Gerald Hurd, he met Alda Suxley who at that time already was um, at the Vedanta Society of Southern California. And he, uh, Gerald Heard told him about this wonderful Swami in St. Louis, which is where Houston Smith was there. He was teaching um, Swami Satprakashananda. So the story goes, the first time Houston Smith went to meet Swami Satprakashananda at this uh, place where Swami prakashananda was teaching at that time, um, there was a class going on, on the Upanishads. And Houston Smith liked it very much. And he wanted to pick up one of those Upanishads. So he got a copy of Katha Upanishad. And he says, Houston Smith says, I went back and read it. And he said, all the truth, so much truth in so few pages. He was completely sold in the idea and he loved it. And that's how he comes. There's a wonderful story of how he comes to be so much influenced by Vedanta. So that is uh, the Upanishad that we are going to take up. A little background. We have already studied the Mandukya Upanishad, which is a sort of the shortest, the most powerful of the Upanishads, sort of the final word on the Upanishad teachings. So I don't know if it was a wise thing to do, but I decided to start with the Mandukya Upanishad. You know, a few years back, we started with the Mandukya Upanishad and you don't just study the Mandukya Upanishad by itself, the short Upanishad with just 12 mantras, but you study it with um, Gaudapada's verses, commentaries, uh, the karikas of Gaudapada on the Mandukya Upanishad. And that's what we did. It's in four chapters or four prakaranas, And we went through that. It's like going to the Himalayas. And the first thing that if, uh, if your guide takes you straight up to the top of the Everest. So that's foolishness, immaturity and ambition on part of the guide. And so that's what prompted me to go there first. But not entirely. Uh, the, there is a tradition uh, is in fact one of the minor Upanishads. Mukti Upanishad says that for those who are seeking enlightenment and liberation, spiritual liberation, spiritual freedom, moksha, Mandukya Upanishad is enough. Mandukyam uh, ekameva alam mumukshunam vimuktaye mumukshu. For those who are seeking moksha, spiritual freedom, for their liberation. Mandukya itself is enough. But then, if it has not worked, and uh, for those who have not yet become enlightened, not yet become uh, spiritually free while living Jivan Mukta, knowers of Brahman, yet, if you want to know what else can we do, the Muktika Upanishad itself goes on to suggest read these 10 Upanishads. Uh, And if these 10 don't work, it goes on ultimately to give a list of 108 Upanishads. So if you want to going to be spared the 108 Upanishads, the whole syllabus, we can read the 10 Upanishads. And the Muktika Upanishad gives a list of what you can do. What are these 10 Upanishads? Includes the Mandukya Upanishad. Uh, the 10 Upanishads are the Isha Upanishad, Kena Upanishad, Katha Upanishad, Katha Upanishad, the one we are going to start with. Uh, Prashna Upanishad, uh, then the the Mundaka Upanishad, the Mandukya Upanishad, which we have already studied once. Uh, And by the way, none of them are supposed to be studied just once, unless you are one of those geniuses who gets gets it and that's it, you become enlightened, you come back to it again and again. So Mandukya Upanishad, then the Aitareya Upanishad, Taitiriya Upanishad, Chandogya Upanishad, and the biggest of them all, the Brihadaranyaka. The Mandukya is the shortest with 12 mantras. The Brihadaranyaka literally means the vast forest, and it's vast. Uh, And the Chandogya also is pretty bulky. Now, what uh, are we going to do? The Mandukya was, uh, it's like going on a jet plane. Um, now we are going to take it more easy. We are going to take the scenic route now. Take it slow and easy. We are going to start with these Upanishads. Um, there is, uh, There are different ways of doing it. I will do it sort of my way. Uh, you know, uh, I am not going to follow the sequence suggested in this verse. You know, sometimes some traditional schools do that. Uh, they start with the Isha, go on to the Kena, which are short Upanishads. Then they do the Katha and the Mundaka and the Mandukya and so on, and end with the Brihadaranyak. What we'll do is uh, we'll start with the Katha Upanishad, then we will go on to the Mundaka Upanishad, then we will go on to um, the uh, Keno Upanishad, then the Isha Upanishad, and then the Taittiriya Upanishad, and uh, uh, then we will. We'll do part of the Taitiri Upanishad. We'll do part, selected portions of the Chandogya Upanishad and selected portions of the Brihadaranya. There are certain reasons why I'm doing this. So I'm leaving out a couple of others, like Aiteriya and Prashna, for example. So we're going to end up doing eight Upanishads. And and at the end, maybe we can repeat the Mandukya once again. So this is the grand plan. By the grace of um, Sri Ramakrishna, the Holy Mother, we will be able to undertake this journey. By their grace, we were able to finish the Mandukya, which is great. Um, why this way? Isha and Kena, they are very short. So why not start with that? And the sequence it starts with Isha and Kena. The reason is, Isha, Upanishad is problematic. Uh, there are a set of four mantras in the middle of that Upanishad, which um, are difficult to interpret. And they are open to multiple interpretations. Uh, I remember once I rushed in my immaturity as a young monk, I was comparing, uh, I was reading Shankara's commentaries on the Upanishads, Isha Upanishad. I said, look, here Shankara does this and Swami Vivekananda says something very different. And I rushed to a very senior Swami of our order, Swami Prabhananda, who is now the vice president of the order, very scholarly, very sharp Swami. And I said... Swami, this commentary uh, disagrees with uh, Swami Vivekananda's commentary. Shankara disagrees with Vivekananda here in this Isha Upanishad. And he chuckled and he said, you're just talking about two commentaries. I'll just show you 11 different commentaries on that, that section. And they all differ from each other. So because of certain reasons, we'll do the Isha Upanishad a little later. In fact, it was one of my assignments two years back at Harvard to compare multiple commentaries. Uh, is the um, video and audio all right? Yes, Maharaj. The camera seem to flicker back and forth a little bit. Looks um, good. Okay. And the Kena is, is short, but it's uh, subtle. So it's the beauty of the Kena Upanishad we can see later on. That's why I want to start with the Katha Upanishad. The Katha Upanishad in um, these Upanishads, Katha, Mundaka, Kena, you will see a different scene, um, The Mandukya Upanishad and Mandukya Karika are very intense. Whereas in these Upanishads, you will have uh, uh, stories, you will have humor, uh, you will have uh, gods and uh, uh, demons, you will have, uh, uh, you know, uh, there are birds and elephants and uh, uh, trees and what not so many wonderful things are there you'll see. Um, so, and dialogues of teachers and students, none of which are present in uh, in the Mandukya Upanishad. It's very intense and it's very dry that way. It's, it's, it's very direct and uh, very powerful. So that's why I said this is the scenic route when we are going to uh, go into this. It was Swami Vivekananda's favorite Upanishad, the Katha Upanishad, which we are talking about now. So that's another reason why I would like to go with that. Uh, and it's a beautiful story about the little boy, Nachiketa, going in search of you know, uh, knowledge to the house of death, no less. Um, what else? However, the truth that we got, the teaching that we got in the Mandukya Upanishad and Mandukya Karika is virtually the same teaching that we will get here uh, in all of these Upanishads. In fact, why just the Upanishads? The introductory texts which we read, and by the way, we read them for pre- in preparation of the journey that we are going to undertake now. We read, first of all, the Drik Drishya Viveka, we read the Aparokshana Bhutti, then we studied Vedanta Sada, finally. And they are all in preparation, especially Vedanta Sada. If you have not followed those classes, don't worry at all the you can catch up later with those classes or you need not but if you have done those classes especially the last one Vedanta Sara you will find it very um, easy going and I mean this the going will be much easier and you will find linkages you will begin to see where the story is the same across all of them um what else do there? all right so we know why are we are doing this this is Upanishads are the foundation of Vedanta. Um, Upanishads and Vedanta are the same. For example, how Vedanta-sara is useful. Vedanta itself is defined as Vedanta-nama-upanishad-pramanam. The source of knowledge called the Upanishads is Vedanta. Literally, Vedanta and Upanishads is the same thing. Um, This is from the Vedanta-sara. Many of the things we talk about, Vedanta-sara gives precise definitions. What exactly those terms mean. But fine, even if you have not uh, attended those classes or you have attended those classes, but you have forgotten, this is very natural, what we did in all of that, doesn't matter. It's all there, it's recorded, thanks to modern technology, it's up there. Um, now, today, before we dive into the Kato Upanishad and begin this long journey together, uh, let me give a little context about what all this is all about. We all know this, but still, quickly, All this is from the um, Vedic literature. The Vedas are the foundational, the root texts of Hinduism. They are very ancient. Uh, If you go to a traditional Pandit, the Pandit will tell you they are timeless. Uh, They have always been existing with God, and God breathed them out. uh, God, like exhaling, breathed out these Vedas or revealed these Vedas to uh, special, specially blessed rishis. Rishis are the sages, the Vedic sages. They are defined, a rishi is defined as rishaya mantra Drashtara. The rishis are those who saw these Vedic mantras, literally saw them. A traditional pandit would say, take it literally. They actually saw these mantras, these texts in Sanskrit, in these words. Now if you think that's a little far-fetched, Swami Vivekananda gave a much more maybe reasonable Um, interpretation that these Upanishads uh, or the Vedas themselves are the spiritual realizations of the rishis. So there there are these spiritual truths ever existing, just like scientists discover uh, uh, scientific truths about nature, these rishis discovered these uh, spiritual truths. So they are, Veda means spiritual knowledge and the spiritual knowledge was revealed to the rishis or the rishis discovered them uh, as a part of the i mean at the culmination of the spiritual practices so we have this vedas spiritual knowledge discovered by revealed to have it your way to the rishis they're obviously in sanskrit a very um, ancient form of sanskrit predating classical sanskrit um, and at some time long long ago long before the buddha himself uh, these this entire literature was classified into four Vedas by Veda Vyasa. It literally means the one who classified the Vedas: the Rig Veda, the uh, Samaveda, the Yajur Veda. Yajur Veda has two branches: the Krishna Yajur Veda and Shukla Yajur Veda. And then finally, the Atharva Veda. Rig Veda, Samaveda, Yajur Veda, Atharva Veda. These are collections of Vedic literature, Vedic texts. All right. And Upanishads are part of these. They're scattered across these Vedas. Now, what do these Vedas contain? What are they all about? They have been given by God through the rishis down to us by a teaching lineage for the benefit of humanity. What kind of benefit of humanity? Well, the Vedas themselves have a clear division. All these Vedas, across the four Vedas, Most of them, the bulk of this literature across the four Vedas are concerned with um, rituals. Karma Kanda, the section dealing with karma. Karma literally means action, but here it means ritualistic action, religious action. So the kind of rituals which you find in the Vedic times, again, long before the Buddha, were not the pujas which you associate with Hinduism today, Um, you know, temples and deities and pujas, but they were the fire rituals on a small scale or on a massive scale. And uh, there will be altars, fire would be lit, offerings would be given to the Vedic deities, specially trained priests of different categories. They would chant the mantras, which are um, embodied in the Vedas. And the idea would be to get certain benefits. These benefits could be worldly or otherworldly. Worldly means... Um, the goals of the goals were dharma, thakama. One might want, uh, you know, uh, wealth or children, or might want uh, uh, rainfall to come and, and uh, protect, the, you know, for nourishment of the crops. Um, my livestock be healthy. My, let me get a wonderful uh, harvest this this season. Uh, let the king might want to win over his enemies in battle. All of these the Karma Kanda said we have rituals which will employ the supernatural forces uh, uh, in your aid and it will work you still have to do the thing you have to go and fight the enemy you have to go and till the soil you have to um, you know take out the cows to pasture all of that has to go on uh, the way the gods will not come and do that for you but you by their blessings success is ensured and so you get what you want in life by the performance of these rituals it may sound a little weird, but it's not actually. If you think about it, it's. it seems, yeah, I recognize that. You look at what's going on in temples and churches and mosques and uh, religion all through the ages, all across the world. Most of religion is basically this. We want the blessings of God or whoever we are playing, praying to, so that what we want in life, we get it. And what we want in life is mostly very worldly. So... We may have specific desires or we just may want the blessings of God, the things may go well with with us. Our families may be healthy, the children may grow up healthy and strong and uh, people of good character and so on. My boss may be happy with me and whatnot. You can have uh, all of those desires, those are worldly desires and religion. Not just the Vedas, not just these ancient 5,000-year-old Indian uh, rishis, but religion in general promises God will help you to lead a better life and give you a set of morals and ethics which you need for your good personal life and for building civilization. The bulk of religion has always been this and there's nothing wrong in it. But that's not the ultimate purpose of religion. There is a higher religion, there is a spirituality. What is that? Now see, these actions which we will come to that, that is the Upanishads, that is called the knowledge portion. So this is the action portion or karma portion, ritualistic portion and the knowledge portion, kanda and jnana kanda. Now the action, why is it called an action portion? Because you are supposed to perform certain actions to get something that you don't have yet. So what were these actions? They were actions performed by the body, they were actions performed by speech, they were actions performed in the mind. Physical, verbal, mental actions. Physical actions were the rituals that the priests performed. And uh, the one called the Yajamana, the one for whose benefit this was being performed. One who is sponsoring this usually expensive kind of uh, ritual. uh, So they performed some physical actions like offerings and all. And then there were verbal actions. So the mantras which you find in the Vedic literature, they were chanted by trained priests to get the desired results. It's very important to chant it properly by having people who have been technically trained. Even now, it's, it goes on. It's still there. One beautiful thing and interesting thing about Hinduism is nothing ever goes out of fashion. Layers and layers come. So you can do an archaeology of religion. If you dig into what is there in living in Hinduism, you will come across layers which date back 5,000 years. In every uh, Hindu ritual today, modern Hindu ritual, you'll find a lamp is burning. The first thing you do is light the lamp. And that lamp is, uh, it actually represents the ancient Vedic fires. So, and of course, the fire rituals are still there in a smaller scale in uh, large Hindu pujas. So that goes on. There is physical action, there is uh, verbal action, the recitation of mantras and mental action, which are called upasana. Upasana. Upasana means certain visualizations which are performed, and all of this was supposed to generate a certain merit, a potentiality. Technical name apurva, apurva, which will give rise to the results. And obviously, you say, but you have to believe this is just a matter of faith. Yes, it's a matter of faith. We believed, strongly believed in this, and not only worldly. More importantly, there are other worldly results to be had. So after death, uh, one would go to any number of heavens. There's not just one heaven, there are multiple heavens, and they have different uh, privileges and facilities for you. Some heavens are much better than others, and you need a lot of that apurva, that potentiality. So you have to have many of those rituals or the big, expensive ones performed, which would require money. uh, And uh, the priests uh, would, you know, you'd have to pay them well. And so they ensure that you. Uh, after physical death you the sentient being you still they are very clear about this physical death is not the end physical birth is not the beginning the subtle body the sentient being the jiva transmigrates it goes on life after life that that is already understood by the time of the vedas you will go to these heavens depending on your um, the your credit if you're in good standing your karma account is good you go to heavens but None of those heavens, whether in uh, none of those heavens and none of the worldly results also, nothing is eternal. This was understood in uh, Karma Kanda. Whatever is produced will be limited and will come to an end. So whatever you get in this world will be limited, will come to an end. And the heavens that you go to it may last for centuries or even millennia, still come to an end. The Gita says, once you are punya. Your merit is exhausted. You have exhausted your credit. You'll be tossed out of heaven. And they describe how bewailing their, their fate, these souls, they tumble back to earth. That means you're reborn again in this human birth to continue your journey. So this was the idea of um, this cycle to ensure that you get a good deal in this life and after life. religion is there to help you. But very soon people saw the limitation of all of this. Um, you don't get anything permanent and it's just an extension of these worldly pleasures that you get in this, these heavens. Maybe much better but still uh, there's nothing deep and then what about the big questions of life? What is the ultimate reality? What is the purpose of this life? Is this merry-go-round that's all? You go on this ride again and again and again. Uh, you get dizzy after some time. What's the point of it? And uh, is there an ultimate goal and is there anything eternal? Is there any uh, release from this cycle of births and deaths? Some good ones, some bad ones. I understand the Vedic rituals uh, will probably ensure me a good ride on the merry-go-round, but still, it's, I'm still on the merry-go-round. You know, They say, if you are in the rat race, you're still a rat. Even if you win the rat race, you've got a lot of Vedic rituals backing you up and so you're top rat, but you're still a rat. So what lies beyond this? if you are unhappy with this, if you are not satisfied with this, and who would really be? A mature person would say, I want the ultimate truth. I want peace. I want fulfillment. I want to overcome suffering, like the Buddha said. Then the Vedas say, ah, good. That's what we also want for you. There is something beyond all this that is called moksha, spiritual liberation or freedom. And we have something in our store. They will take you to the side of the store and open up a, you know, a secret locker, the vault, and bring out the real goodies. These goodies are the Upanishads. They will solve this problem once for all. This round of births and deaths, freedom from that, something eternal, that which gives you ultimate fulfillment and takes you beyond this round of uh, tears and smiles. That is jnana Kanda the knowledge portion, the philosophical portion, the spiritual portion, the higher religion, spirituality. So Vedanta, Vedanta uh, Upanishads make up not Upanishads, the Vedas make a clear distinction between the Karma Kanda and the Jnana Kanda. Just by the way, the Karma Kanda itself can be further divided into the Karma portion and the Upasana portion. The karma portion are the, 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 the uh, physical and the verbal actions And the upasana is the mental actions, the meditations. So one can say that the Vedas have three divisions karma, upasana, jnana. The action, the ritualistic action portion, the meditation portion, and the knowledge portion. But the ritualistic action and the physical action, they are all actions. So they belong to that, uh, the earlier portion. Real spirituality, what you call God-realization, self-realization, brahma jnana, the goal being uh, Moksha, Nirvana, whatever you call it. There are many names used in ancient India. Nirvana was, is pre-Buddhistic. Um, and it becomes famous with Buddhism. So Moksha, Nirvana, Kaivalya, uh, these Apavarga, multiple names were used um, for this ultimate highest goal. And the Vedas actually want you to attain this. If religion, the Vedas and all religion, actually want you to attain God realization or Brahmagyan and that means liberation, moksha, whatever it is, then why did they, the question, why did they speak about all this? Why is so much literature they were devoted to worldliness? Why, if all those things are lower, they just perpetuate the cycle of birth and death, if the goal is to be free of the cycle of birth and death, Then why perpetuate that? If the goal is to be uh, infinite, why lock a person into finite existence through these rituals and all? Because you want it. You ordered it. Until we evolve to the point when we see that finite nature cannot satisfy us. We are infinite. Only infinity can satisfy us. We are made of God stuff. Only God can satisfy us. Only God can fill the God-shaped hole in our lives. Until we come to that point, uh, until we are grown up in spiritual life, we'll continue to be babies in spiritual life. And for babies in spiritual life, either you can be very strict and say, Mandukya or nothing, my way or the highway. You do your worldly stuff, I have nothing to do with you. When you suffer enough, get enough kicks and blows, come to me, I'll show you the way out of it. That's a harsh, rather harsh. And the religions, the Vedas compared to a mother a compassionate mother and the religions of the world also they are compassionate what we want in life they show us a wiser way if we want to be very happy we want to be we want to get all the goodies without doing the hard work and we want to be spared all the nastiness which we deserve because of the nasty things we did all of those things which we want religion says yes you can have it i'll show you a better way of getting it and the better way would be an ethical way depending on god Pursuing the same, the same worldly goals. So that is the life of most ordinary religious people around the world. If you see, you just have to open your eyes and look, what are the people who are going to the temples and churches? What's going on there? What are they praying for? And this also develops the faith in the Vedas. This develops the faith in religion. That when I am finally done with that, when I really want to, by by that time, already I have a sense of God, I have a sense of an ultimate reality, Brahman, Atman. Then I seek that alone. So it's a gradual path. So do I have to start with the Karma Kanda? Do I have to start with rituals? Not at all. Not at all. Those who are here in the Vedanta society or those who are listening to these talks, already we have a sense that there is that we want the highest. I have we have a sense of maturity about the world. I have seen and have seen through the things of this world. One of the Upanishads, Mundaka Upanishad, says, uh, "Parikshalokaan karma chitan Brahmana." The spiritual seeker, having examined what can be attained by karma, worldly action and Vedic action, whatever can be attained by that, having examined all of that, has de- develops dispassion for all of that. That I don't want it. It's not something I'm interested in. I've seen enough of it. It might be a baby, but it might be an ancient soul in a baby body. So little children might be very spiritual sometimes, and um, uh, old um, people with beards and uh, the uh, end of their lives might be very childish also. It's the soul, the jivatma. Which soul? I mean, jivatma, the sentient being, individual beings, us. It evolves over time through knowledge and experience and knowledge all action O arjuna krishna says in the gita culminates in experience in knowledge ultimate knowledge enlightenment but before that this much knowledge this is the experience i take away from this life you might ask but uh, the problem is i don't remember my past life so all the knowledge is lost no it's not lost memories are lost our memories are not even that. Memories are inaccessible to us. Doesn't matter. Memory is a weak thing. Uh, do we really learn from memory? We don't. How many times we know what is wrong, we remember it very well, end up repeating it. We know what is right, we don't do it. So our conscious knowledge, conscious memory is a very weak thing. Then what is powerful? Samskar Character is powerful general tendency of the personality is powerful. What is this character? What is this general tendency? It is the accumulated tendencies of many lives. It's called samskaras. The French existentialists said it right. They said, don't listen to what a person says. Watch what that person does. We speak about many things that we may want, we may have read about, we may have understood But uh, that may not represent the truth of what we are at this point. Luckily, our samskaras are not our real nature. Even beyond our samskaras is the real nature Atman, which is already perfect. Because if samskaras are who we are, then it seems to be an endless toil, very difficult. uh, Very difficult to change. and It's a long lifetime after lifetime. No. You already are that perfect reality. That's what Vedanta will teach us. Now, when we come to the Upanishads, the Vedas say, come to these texts. Forget the ritualistic portion. By the way, when I say forget, just something, uh, it might create a little doubt. If we are spiritual seekers now, so are we going to forget all the rituals? Maybe we don't do fire sacrifices, but uh, we do some rituals. Many of us are uh, temple goers, church goers. We have uh, devotion. We like hymns. We like we do puja. We put flowers and... No, they are not uh, um, useless. For a spiritual seeker, they are useful. So this thing is very well understood in in the Vedas. Those who want worldly things and other worldly things, you perform these rituals with desire. Sanskrit word is Sakama, and you will get those results. Those who do not want these things, they want only God realization, self-knowledge, enlightenment, I'm using the term broadly, you too can perform these rituals, but, Uh, selflessly without desire, nishkama. Why would you perform them? They will help you to get what you want. It it has these uh, spiritual, these will become spiritual practices. The same flowers and incense and the same deity, no longer you want worldly things or or going to heaven after that. What you want now is I want purity of mind. I want uh, dispassion for worldliness. I want self-control. I want concentration. I want devotion. I want enlightenment. You can pray for those same, those same things to the same God for whom you, to whom you are praying for worldly things earlier. Now you can pray for these. Notice, whenever you have these questions, um, a very good way to find out the answer in a satisfying way is to look at the lives of great spiritual practitioners. Sri Ramakrishna wanted only Kali. But notice, he performed rituals. Thousands of others who were coming to the Kali temple they were coming there for worldly gains. But he was not in the Kali temple for worldly gains. He wanted God realization. But he still performed the same ritual. The same Kali puja which somebody else would, might perform for worldly things. So the rituals, the Vedic rituals, also can be performed without desire. Again, Vedanta Sar, almost many, just about everything of this is, uh, has been indicated in Vedanta Sar. Vedanta Sar says, all these rituals have twofold effects. One, for those with desire, it will give them what they want. Those without desire, if they perform it, it will give them chitta shuddhi, purification. See, from this comes the entire idea of karma yoga. That same karma which you are performing for worldly success earlier. Now, Krishna says to Arjuna, the same battle you fight because it is right and because it will help you in your ultimate goal of spiritual perfection. So, that's the point. uh, That Yes, those rituals are valid. You can still go to the temple and you should. You can still uh, do a puja or attend a puja, and um, you can worship God, pray to God. It'll help you in this Upanishad quest for self-knowledge and moksha liberation. In fact, that's exactly what God wants from you. God wants from us is this: God wants us to find God. All the other things, Sri Ramakrishna puts it beautifully: as long as the child is playing with the toys, the mother is busy. She has a lot of things to do. She has to look after the universe, so she is busy in her kitchen. Um, But when the baby throws the toys away and Sri Ramakrishna would demonstrate physically and weeps and howls, "Ma, mother, then the mother puts down whatever she is doing. She puts all of that down and rushes to the baby and takes the baby on her lap. This is what, um, you know, so the baby has moved from Karma Kanda to (laughs) Jnana Kanda, from worldly desires to the desire for um, God. Uh, spirituality now how is this different we are all trained in the vedic karma kanda now imagine what kind of religion we are trained in in doing things physical verbal mental so now we are trained in that we come to the new thing that the jnana kanda knowledge portion immediately we want to know so what should i do yes i want to be enlightened i should want to be free what should i do and the upanishad the first shock we get is upanishad tells us nothing what? Nothing. Yes, nothing. You can't do anything to attain what this uh, enlightenment. You can't. Because what you are looking for is you yourself. Your own very self, the real self, that's what you're looking for. And there is there's no, no need and nothing can be done, in fact, to attain yourself, because you are always yourself. Then what is the problem? The problem is you don't know it. We don't know that. Ignorance is the problem. Notice, in the karmakanda, what was the problem? Non-attainment was the problem. Wealth, rainfall, defeating the enemy, um, um, you know, um, getting children, going to heaven. All of those, those are attainments. I get this, that, and the other thing. And I, I'll be happier and happier and happier. Doesn't work, but that's what we thought. Now it's, it's reversed. There's nothing to get. It's already there. And you are already that. Tattvamasi. The whole of uh, Vedanta Upanishads are summed up as Tattvamasi. Some terms. We know all this and quickly rushing through it. Vedanta. You're talking about Veda, but why are you saying Vedanta now? Because this is that portion of the Vedas which tells you the highest teaching of the Vedas. Veda Anta. means end, but end here in the sense of Siddhanta. End means not physically at the end of the Vedas, but At the the ultimate, highest, final conclusions, the highest spirituality that you can get from the Vedas is called Vedanta. What's the connection with the Upanishads? Upanishads are those special texts which give you this. The rest talk about rituals or meditations. But the Upanishads talk about that knowledge. And why is it knowledge? Because the problem now is not of non-attainment. It's already attained. But we do not know this real nature. So the problem is ignorance. And like any kind of ignorance, the solution is knowledge. It won't happen automatically. Just as in the karmakanda portion, what you wanted will not happen automatically. You have to put in the hard work, and you have to do these rituals to please God, gods, whatever it is, and finally you'll get it. Similarly here also, ignorance is natural. Natural in the sense you are born with it. Every kind of ignorance is natural. So suppose I don't know Spanish. It's always been there, the case that I don't know Spanish. But if I want to change the situation, if I want to know Spanish, I have to put in the effort to get that knowledge. So knowledge has to be now acquired. Not something to be done, but something to be known. And here, the special object of this knowledge is not an object. That's the thing. The special object of the knowledge here is the subject, is you yourself. Self-knowledge is the name of the game here. So, um, Upanishad, before we go into it, um, let me define the term Upanishad. So, there are certain words I wanted to define here like Vedanta. So, what is Vedanta? Siddhanta. Siddhanta, ultimate conclusion of Veda. Sometimes Vedanta, Vedanta is taken as the end of the Vedas because... In the Vedic corpus, sometimes you find the Upanishads at the end of the Vedic um, collections, like the Rig Veda, the Veda Sanghitas. Um, in one of the Sanghitas, Isha Upanishad is the 40th chapter, last chapter in the uh, Sanghita. But not always. Not always. Sometimes the Upanishads are in the middle somewhere. Um, the Upanishad that we have done, Mandukya, is from the Atharva Veda. Now. Um, these uh, Upanishads are called Vedanta because they teach the ultimate, the highest teaching. But what does the term Upanishad itself mean? The Upanishad, uh, the term Upanishad, is, this is a good point to define it because Shankaracharya in his commentary on the Kathopanishad, Upanishad uh, has, uh, the introduction is mostly uh, explanation of the term Upanishad. So what does Upanishad mean? Upanishad, the word, the Sanskrit word Upanishad can be split up, analyzed into upa and ni. These are two prefixes. Prefix upa, ni. Then there's a verb, a verbal root called sat. And there is a suffix, which you don't see because it, in the, because rules of Sanskrit grammar, it disappears finally. That suffix is called quip. K, if you write, want to write in English, k-v-i-p, quip. Upa, U-P-A, Upa, plus ni, N-I, plus sad, S-A-D, or S-A-T. And then plus quip, K-V-I-P. It's a Sanskrit grammar suffix. By the rules of Sanskrit grammar, upa stays, ni stays, sad stays, but quip disappears. But quip disappears, but quip, uh, the meaning of quip is retained. The meaning is the agent, that which does something, karta. All right, so what do they mean? Upa means near, near, near something, proximity. So what does this mean in terms of Upanishad? The first meaning, the surface meaning of Upa Upa would be to go near the teacher, to go near the teacher. Or a deeper meaning would be to go near this knowledge. That means to acquire this knowledge. And the deepest meaning of Upa is since it's proximity, proximity without limit, what is the most proximate thing to you? What is the closest thing to you? The nearest thing to you, you yourself. There can't be anything nearer than that, the self. So upa means um, self, okay? That's the deepest meaning. Now, don't immediately say self because um, then anyone who knows Sanskrit will say, what nonsense has your teacher taught you? Upa means near. But the deeper philosophical meaning of that would be, in this context only, would be the nearest of the near, which is the self. Um, the ni means clarity, nishchaya, conviction, free from any doubt, beyond doubt, absolutely certain, that is nishchaya. Sat, the root, the verbal roots, uh, the verb roots, sat has um, three meanings, visharana, gati, avasadhan. According to Shankara, let me explain. The primary meaning is gati. Gati means the goal, to take you to the goal. So here gati is Brahman, the ultimate reality. That which takes you to the goal. Um, Related meaning is avagati. Avagati means knowledge. Therefore, it means that knowledge which takes you to the goal Brahman and takes you here does not mean a physical journey. You're not going on a pilgrimage to Brahman. It's the knowledge which reveals that you are Brahman. That's the meaning of Gati. Where does this Gati come from? It's one of the meanings of Sat. Then Shankaracharya says there's a second meaning of Sat, which is uh, Visharana, to split or destroy. To split or destroy, split, cut, destroy. Splits, cuts, destroys what? My ignorance about myself. If there was no ignorance, there would be no need about Upanishads. But there is ignorance about myself. The Upanishads say, Vedanta says, you are seriously misinformed about yours. You do not know who, who or what you are. So that ignorance is cut, split, destroyed. Sanskrit, Visharana. All of this is from um, Shankara's introduction to the Katha Upanishad. Visharana, it destroys ignorance. And finally, avasadhana. Avasadhana means loosens, relaxes, loosens. It loosens the bondages of samsara. It, even before full enlightenment, uh, it sets you free, gives, of, gives you peace of mind, sets you free from, there's a technical meaning of that. And let me tell you, because otherwise you'll be confused if you read Shankara's in, uh, introduction. He says, the Upanishad also loosens the bonds of samsara. How? Because apart from the ultimate realization of Brahman, you will see in the Katha Upanishad and on the other Upanishads, something that you have not seen in the Mandukya. The certain uh, remnants of the Karma Kanda you will see here. It says that if you perform those rituals, this time without any desire, even if you don't get enlightenment, you will attain to the highest of those heavens, which is Brahmaloka and you will never come back again to this world of um, human birth so you will never enter a cycle of suffering again but you will still not be enlightened you will remain in Brahma Loka. from there on you will get ultimately enlightenment this is called krama mukti krama mukti means liberation sequentially in contrast to sadyo mukti sadyo mukti means liberation here and now upanishad advaita vedanta wants you to attain wants us to attain enlightenment and liberation here and now Here, here, in this life. Now itself. But suppose it doesn't happen. Can the Upanishads help me in some other way? Or have I lost everything? As Krishna says to Arjuna, it's not lost. Nothing is lost. You will attain to the highest state possible, below enlightenment, and continue your spiritual journey. Okay. Um, So, put it all together. Quip means the agent or the karta which does all this. Now, if you put it all together, upa, the atman, the self, ni, conviction, clarity, certainty, Sadh, the knowledge which takes you to that, the destruction of ignorance and loosening the bonds of samsara, that which equips, that which makes you do all this, or that that which gives you all this, and it, it's like um, when you say, "I make a house," "I made a house," you mean that you contracted out the job to other people, you made other people, make the house for you. Similarly, Upanishad is that which gives us the knowledge which, uh, about the self, which sets us free. Put it in one word, Upanishad is the knowledge of the self. Atma Vidya. In Sanskrit, Atma Vidya. Vidya is knowledge. Uh, atma is the self, the real self. Because in Vedanta, Atman and Brahman are the same thing. So it can also call it Brahma Vidya, the knowledge of Brahman. So one word, Upanishad, is equal to Atma Vidya, is equal to Brahma Vidya, the knowledge of the self, knowledge of Brahman. Now Shankaracharya in his commentary also says, hey, wait a minute. I say I am reading the Upanishad. How can it be I am reading this knowledge of Brahman? I have got all the Upanishads, I purchased them. So how can you get knowledge of Brahman from Amazon. So, uh, these might be little nitpicking, but they are very careful. Say, yes, you are right. When we normally speak about Upanishads, uh, you mean the book. So, Upanishad, the word Upanishad primarily refers to uh, knowledge of the self, knowledge of Atman or Brahman. And uh, uh, secondarily, it refers to the book, the texts, the different texts which are called Upanishads. The secondary meaning of Upanishad is the book. Real meaning, the knowledge, that which gives you enlightenment and sets you free. In fact, enlightenment itself is the meaning of Upanishads. Um, oh, that reminds me, good. Book, people keep asking what book? We have already said that. Any Katha Upanishad book, if you get on the market from the Vedanta Society, Ramakrishna Mission uh, publications or my Mission uh, uh, and others are also available. The one which I'm using is this uh, set of two volumes, uh, eight Upanishads translated by Swami Gram Gambhiranandaji, volume one and two. It's available from Vedanta Press. You can always get it, uh, but you can get any other version also. That's fine as long as it has the text. This has the advantage of a uh, the original Devanagari text of the Upanishad, uh, and uh, the precise Swami Gambhiranandaji was very precise. His translations might not be. Um, very lucid but they are very very accurate so the translation of the Upanishad and the translation of the um, commentary of Shankara so what you see here in English all of this this is the commentary introduction given by Shankaracharya the Sanskrit is not there but a precise English translation is there what I'll be teaching is the original Upanishad and I use the Gita press book with the original commentary of Shankaracharya that's mainly will be my basis of teaching so that is the meaning of the word Upanishad. How many Upanishads we have already seen? Our syllabus is going to be uh, eight of the ten major Upanishads. We have already done Mandukya once. We are going to do seven others. Some completely, some uh, partially. These eight Upanishads will help you with um, five of them. Uh, the two, Chandogya and brihadaranyaka they are very big. Though. They will, that's years later, down the road. <laughs> All right. Um, now, self-knowledge. So the Upanishad will give us that knowledge. How will it give us that knowledge? You must know how to uh, use an Upanishad. How to use that Upanishad? Shravana manana nididhyasana. We have done all this many times over. You must study it systematically. You must literally hear it. But it must be taught by a competent teacher. And you listen to it. Uh, grasp the meaning of the text. After which there will be doubts so you uh, contemplate the meaning of the texts reason it out and then once you have got clarity about it meditate upon it it becomes a living reality you see that it's a fact there is the opposite contrary tendencies of behaving as a body mind as a limited person are overcome and you realize your infinite nature it becomes a living reality that is enlightenment that's the freedom promised by the upanishads what is the result of that the result of that is what we have been seeking all along, even in the um, Karma kanda and all, before that also, everybody, every living being seeks that to overcome suffering and to attain fulfillment. That will finally happen. That's the goal which has been promised. Um, shavana Manana Nididhyasana. Um, this process is called Jnana Yoga. Shavana Manana Nididhyasana together. What are you doing, Shravana, Manana, of The Upanishads and the Upanishadic literature. So now we come to the Upanishadic, Upanishadic literature. These Upanishads, not just these 10, but there are many others also. The Muktika Upanishad itself gives a list of 108, but primarily these 10. Now there is a whole literature based on this. Um, Krishna uses these Upanishads and gives a condensed message of the Upanishads to Arjuna. Uh, in the that's the Bhagavad Gita. So there are many people who say, "Oh, Upanishads are the final, highest teachings of Vedanta." But we have not read the Upanishads. In many cases, you have read the Gita, and people say, "Yeah, we have read the Gita. That's good enough." So the Gita is the condensed message of the Upanishads. Sometimes Krishna actually quotes from the actual uh, from Kathopanishad, for example, in some place. So what has been taught in the Upanishads, and they all carry the same message, and uh, um, Krishna teaches that to Arjuna, and in a very practical way. Upanishads, we'll see it sounds, if you remember Mandukya Upanishad, Mandukya Karika, very abstract and very philosophical. But how do you apply it in day-to-day life? How do you talk? How do you eat? What do you? How do you react to situations? How do you keep calm? How do you lead a virtuous life in the midst of travail? All of that, Gita tells you. It actualizes the uh, Upanishads. And then there's another text based on the Upanishads called the Brahma Sutras, um, one of our Swamis translated it as God formulae, the formulas of God, <laughs> Brahma Sutras. Sutras are very compact formulae, uh, aphorisms. What is this? It was composed by Badarayana of Vyasa, who um, takes up questions which arise from the Upanishads. When you read the Upanishads, they are mystical, they are radical, they are very deep, and um, sometimes they're elusive. So how do you reconcile? Each Upanishad seems to give an independent view of reality. Although they are telling the same story, but you said, how do you know they're telling the same story? Because they use different terminology for for the individual self. They use different terminology for the ultimate reality. So how do you know they're talking about the same thing? All this reconciling is done in the Brahma Sutras. Then what about the non-Upanishadic views? Um, uh, The there are many other schools, you know. Sankhya says something, Nyaya says something, uh, though they give lip service to the Upanishads, but they do a lot of free thinking. So, how do you manage all of that? Then there are those who don't even accept the Upanishads, they don't even accept the Vedas. There are the Buddhists, there are the materialists, there are the, um, the Jainas. So, how do you respond to those views? So, multiple points of view uh, which are ranged against Vedanta that is uh, replied to in the Brahma Sutras plus some additional points about what is the result of all of this? What are the practices to be done? That's Brahma Sutras, 555 aphorisms. Now, these three are called Prasthanatraya. Upanishads taken together, Prasthanatraya means the triple foundation. In English, we have a term canonical literature, foundational literature or canonical literature. (coughs) Let's close. I mean, literally, you can say the triple foundation, three-fold foundation. At the bottom is the Upanishads. They are the foundation of the whole thing. You might say, then why not include the whole Vedas? Notice in certain respects, the Upanishads are the reputation of what went on earlier in the Vedas. They just say, congratulations, you have made it to uh, the, you know, to what we really want you to come to. This is the real thing that the Vedas want to tell you. You need not bother about all that has gone on earlier. So the foundation is the Upanishads themselves and then they are called Shruti Prasthana. Shruti means Veda. So the the foundation which comes from the Veda is called Shruti Prasthana, literally what has been heard. Then you have the uh, Smriti Prasthana, Um, you know, the non-Vedic literature which supports and is based on Vedas are called Smritis. So for example, uh, the Gita would be considered as Smriti. Technically, Gita is part of Mahabharata and Ramayana, and Mahabharata and Ramayana are technically considered itihasa. But anyway, um, in the general sense, Gita is a smriti. So Gita will be smriti prasthana, the foundation from smritis. And because the Brahma Sutras are logical argument, are argumentative, are uh, based on philosophizing reason, so they are called nyaya or logic. Uh, nyaya prasthana the foundation from logic so triple triple foundations they are not equal important root upanishad practical um, advice on using the upanishads in life gita and you know working out all the logical kings and problems and questions brahma Sutras. now all of this is explained by commentators and each commentator gives his own spin to it shankara acharya the commentator the interpretation we shall follow uh, gives his commentaries they are called bhashya he comments on 10 of the upanishads these 10 upanishads out of which we are studying um, 8 um, so uh, he he comments so his commentaries are my main uh, source of interpretation if you say where are you getting all this swami i'm getting it all from him uh, then so he writes commentaries on 10 Upanishads, he writes commentaries on the Bhagavad Gita, one commentary, and he writes a commentary on the Brahma Sutras. And that's how we understand these three. But he's not the only one. Um, his commentaries are the basis for Advaita Vedanta, non-dual Vedanta. And we'll come to the term Advaita. Uh, but then there's Ramanujacharya, whose commentaries are the basis of the system of Advaita Vedanta. There is Madhvacharya, Uh, whose commentaries are the uh, basis of the system called Dvaita Vedanta. Same Upanishads, same Gita, same uh, Brahma Sutra, but multiple commentaries with different interpretations. Then we have uh, Vallabhacharya whose commentaries specifically the differences are in the commentaries on Brahma Sutra because these are philosophical differences. Shankara's commentary on Brahma Sutra, Ramanuja's commentary on Brahma Sutra, Madhva's commentary on Brahma Sutra, Vallabhacharya's commentary on Brahma Sutra. So, Vallabha's commentary on Brahma Sutra is the basis for the system called Shuddha Dvaita Vedanta. Then there is uh, um, Nimbarka's commentary on the Brahma Sutras, which is the basis of the system called Dvaita Dvaita Vedanta. Uh, later, there came um, the, the Govinda Bhashya, a commentary on the Brahma Sutras by um, by uh, our uh, uh, Baladeva, Baladeva Acharya, Baladeva Acharya So that became the basis of the, the Vedanta system known as um, the the Achintya Bheda Veda school. These are not as esoteric as they may sound. Oh, weird names. No, Achintya Bheda Veda school is the foundation basis of the Gaudiya Vaishnavas whom you see around in the in America, in New York here, do you know them as the Hare Krishna? So the ISKCON monks. So yes, uh, these are philosophical texts, philosophical systems, but they are well represented in modern Hinduism. All of modern Hinduism, most of it at least, uh, can be traced back to one or more of these interpretations. All right. One more word, interpretation, a couple of more words. What is um, Advaita? and what is katha, just the words themselves. Advaita, we know it means non-duality. Let me give you now a precise uh, philosophical meaning, etymological philosophical meaning of the word Advaita. Dvaita, Dvaita duality, Advaita, not duality, so non-duality in English, precise meaning. I have to use a little bit of Sanskrit here, but I'll translate. Um, Dvabhyam itam in relation with two things. If something is in relation with two things, it's called dvita, not dvaita, dvita. What is dvita? Dvabhyam itam, um, in relation with two things. And the condition, this nature of being in relation with two things, something is in related to two other things, is called dvaita. Dvita is this relationship, and dvaita is the nature of being in this relationship. Now what does this mean? Sounds very abstract. Nothing very abstract. If Brahman is in contact with two other, there are two other realities, Jiva and Jagat, God, sentient being, universe. You have got these three, God is in contact with these three, with these two. In contact with two, who is in contact? Brahman. What are the two they're in contact with? Jiva and Jagat. Jiva means sentient being, us. Jagat means universe. So right now, for example, in us, the physical body belongs to the universe. But the sentient being inside consciousness, the spark of consciousness, which I think I am, that's the individual being. So individual being, jiva, sentient being, jiva, universe, jagat, and brahman, ultimate reality. If you have these three, brahman in contact with the other two realities, they are realities um, in relation to brahman, but also uh, distinct in themselves. This is called dvaita. This nature is called Dwaita. This whole situation is called Dwaita. Not Dwaita, a negation of Dwaita is called Advaita. That means if you deny that the ultimate reality is in contact with two things, Jiva and Jagat. If you deny the ultimate reality is in some kind of real relationship with Jiva and Jagat, then you have Advaita. What does that mean? Because remember, Advaita says, Brahman is the only reality. The world is an appearance in Brahman. The rope is in no contact with the snake. The movie, the cinema screen is no contact with the characters of a movie. You say, but they are there. No, they are not there. That's the whole point of a movie. You in a dream are never in contact with the places and the characters in the dream, never where. It all appeared in your dream. Similarly, Brahman is not in contact in relationship with sentient beings or with the physical universe. This is called Advaita. This is the precise technical meaning of Advaita. Not being in relation with two other realities. World, Jagat is an appearance and the Jeeva, sentient being, is none other than Brahman. It's not that you are in relationship with God. You are identical with God. Therefore, Advaita, non-dual. Where, where is this coming from? This is this is the most precise uh, etymological and philosophical meaning of the term advaita. You can show, don't show off, but you can if you want to. It's usually translated as non-dual, which is fine. But I'll tell you the source. This is from Sureshwaracharya, Acharya, who was one of the great great post Shankara Advaita philosophers, a disciple of Shankara Acharya. So he has written commentaries on Shankaracharya's commentaries. So this is from Brihadaranyaka Upanishad Bhashya Vartika. Now we will begin to understand what all this means. Brihadaranyaka is one of those Upanishads, the biggest one. Bhashya is Shankaracharya's commentary on Brihadaranyaka. Vartika is Sureshwaracharya's commentary on the commentary of Shankaracharya's commentary on the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad. So there, Advaita Vedanta was taught by Shankara and sureshwara says what is advaita vedanta he says let me read out the verse dvidhetam dvitam ityaho tadbhavo dvaitam uchyate tannishedena cha dvaitam very beautiful and simple, very precise verse dvidhetam dvitam the condition of being in relation with two realities Brahman is in relation to with two realities is called dvita and, and that tasya bhava the nature of this whole situation is called dvaitam being in relation with two things the relation itself is called dvitam being in relation with two things this whole thing is called dvaitam duality tan nise the Negation of this situation, advaitam, is called advaitam, non duality, not dvaitam. What does it all mean? He says, vastu avidhiyat. very simple. It's your inner reality. It's you. All this means you, the real you. So that's Sureshwaracharya for you. <laughs> um, I This book I I found it in is one of those people from whom I learned a little bit. A very great scholar of Advaita Vedanta in in Calcutta, he used to come and teach. Maha Sitanath Goswami. So he was very quite elderly when I went. I had heard about him. So I went to attend one of his classes. Um, He just wanted to see. It was difficult to come from our main monastery to Calcutta. So just as a sample, I wanted to listen to some of his talks, so I went, and on the same day, another of our swamis, who is a very well-known speaker in in, uh, Bengali, probably the best one right now in our whole order in Bengali, uh, he was giving a talk on Vedanta in the same institute, and the institute has a huge hall which can hold 800 people, and that was overflowing, they had more than a thousand people to listen to the talk of this swami. I was going to speak about Vedanta. He was going to speak about Advaita, Advaita, and Dvaita Vedanta. And there were people standing in queues and all of that. Near the hall, there was this little classroom where this pundit, this scholar was teaching and there were hardly uh, 15 people there. Uh, so I went to listen to him and I quickly realized why so few people turn up. The first half, first 15 minutes of the class is a severe scolding. Uh, It it goes like this it's pretty rough. It starts like this. Staring at me, at me, don't understand anything. I'm translating from Bengali. Why do I do this? Why do I punish myself this way? It's so awful. Just looking at your, your dark faces, dark with ignorance. It's just awful. I can't take it anymore anyway. Let's get on with it. And then he and he t- treats everybody like they are a five-year-old. You can't t- treat five-year-olds here in the USA like that. So he asks this lady who is a retired school teacher uh, in, of Sanskrit. He says, Stand up, tell me what was done in the last class. Define superimposition. And she sort of giggles shyly and he says, No, I won't let you off. You're going to, I'm going to make you keep standing till you tell me. So it's just uh, <laughs> It was, but when he did start teaching, amazing. You saw the precision of this, what, what he did just now, with the word Advaita. We generally say non-duality. Non-duality means uh, there is nothing else after other than Brahman. That's it. But duality here refers not to uh, two things, Brahman and something else. No, it refers to Jiva and Jagat, the sentient being and the world. Those are not two. They are not there when we talk about Brahman. So uh, so that's where I got it. Sita Nath Goswami. <laughs> he, uh, he would, it is strict rule. Everybody after the class has to go and bow down to him. They would touch his feet. Uh, but monks were exempt. He would scowl. At one or two monks who were present, he would scowl at us and said, Not you, Swamis. Stop. Don't do that. <laughs> um, all right. Then, Katha. We're going to of the Upanishads. We're going to start Katha Upanishad. So I'll just mention what is Katha Upanishad and stop. We know what Upanishad means, what Vedanta means, and the different schools of Vedanta, what Advaita means, and then Katha. Katha is the name of the Rishi who gave this Upanishad. I'm not saying composed, but I'm saying gave, because the whole idea that is being revealed, and they are the ones who give it out. So the name of the Rishi is Katha. My book says Katha was a disciple of the Rishi Vaishampayana, who was a disciple of the Rishi Vyasa. I don't know where I got that factoid, but anyway, that's the lineage. Katha Rishi, his teacher is Vaishampayana, his teacher is Vyasa. Not that it matters, but it's just interesting. Um, Shankaracharya throughout his commentary, refers to the Upanishad as Kathaka Upanishad. The Upanishad, the teaching given by Katha. So technically, that might be the correct name. So is it wrong to call it Katha Upanishad? No. The popular usage is Katha Upanishad. Everybody calls it the Katha Upanishad. The Upanishads themselves. Did you notice when I recited the name of the 10 Upanishads from the Muktika Upanishad? Isha, Kena, Katha, Prashna. Even the Upanishad itself calls it Katha. So Katha is not a wrong name to use. Katha Upanishad. Or if you want to be a stickler, Katha Upanishad. Okay. That's it. Um, there must be lots of comments. I'm sorry, I took so much time to cover, but next time we'll start. We'll start with the meaning of the peace chant and then the Upanishad itself. Shravani says, when did worship puja become more prevalent in Yajna and Hindu society? It's a matter of historical thinking, time of Shankaracharya, no. Um, even before that, We hear of huge temples and uh, images and pujas, but in Shankaracharya's time, for a long time, both were there, large Vedic sacrifices, as well as uh, the worship of the Puranic deities. But it's an interesting historical question. Shanri says, if we are part of an omnipotent God, if you're part of an omnipotent God, that is immediately, when you use such language, it is Vishishtadvaita, not Advaita. Notice how these words are very precise in relationship with uh, us and the universe. So if the omnipotent God is, we are part of that, then we have a part whole relationship with that omnipotent God, that is vishishtadvaita. If you negate that, no relationship with uh, uh, individual beings of the universe, only that ultimate reality exists, then what am I? I am that ultimate reality. Anyway, still to go on with your question, is our mind different from God? Can you please explain how Hinduism is different from the rest of the religious creeds in this world? How can you differentiate Hinduism from others and why should I be proud of being a Hindu? These are general and big questions and they have been answered many times over. So is my mind different from the mind of God? Immediately bring in Vedanta Sar. You see, every one of these questions can be answered by Vedanta Sar. What is God according to Vedanta Sar? Ultimate reality is pure consciousness, plus Maya, which is Ishwara. Put the layer of the cosmic mind, it is called Hiranyagarbha. Put the layer of the entire universe, it is called Virat. Then what is our mind? Our mind is part of Hiranyagarbha. You might even ask that, didn't you just say that we are not parts of God? Yes, you, the real you, you are not the mind. The real you, which is not the mind, is identical with the reality of God. Or as the German mystic Meister Eckhart said, the the ground of my soul and the ground of God are one and the same. That is Advaita. Can you distinguish Hinduism from others? Uh, Yes and no. Hinduism is so encompassing that everything that you find more or less in every other religion, most of it, you will find in Hinduism. I always call Hinduism a full-spectrum religion. Full-spectrum religion from... A to Z, everything is there. Uh, But here we are focusing specifically on Advaita Vedanta, one of the many paths but sort of a predominant philosophical uh, flavor of Hinduism. So we are going to take Advaita Vedanta. And Advaita Vedanta, of course, is very unique. There are very few teachings, traditions close to Advaita Vedanta. The conclusions have been arrived at by the mystics of great world religions. But a clear, logical path chalked out for us and you know directions for enlightenment, these are unmatched what you get in Advaita Vedanta. Samskaras and Vasanas are used interchangeably. Um, uh, yes. And Vasanas in, tend of, in the sense of more of desire. Samskaras in the more sense of uh, tendencies. But they are saying desires also will be tendencies ji asks rituals and puja could even be performed simply for the love of God, not for any special benefits exactly so if you perform it for the love of God, not for any special benefit you're already on the path of higher spirituality you're on the path of bhakti yoga. Pranam Swamiji, please advise us regarding a good way to perform mananam, we will go on don't worry. <laughs> yes. Um okay. Rodrigo says, I'm trying to remember where in the Vedas the shloka, which where the offering is and the fire is offered so that I gets as a result many yeah, brahmacharis as a secondary blessing. Yes. So um, uh, one of the chants says, May many brahmacharis, many many students come come to us. So many people, may many people join the Zoom classes and we offer. Uh, we have to be careful while offering that in today because the fire alarm will go off if you start offering (laughs) and here in Manhattan upper west the fire service is very very quick to respond within a minute or two you will find fire uh, uh, services around here but yes there is a uh, chant let uh, many brahmacharis come to us many students come to us Aitupanishad is very cheap in Kindle version. Yes, I'm old-fashioned. I like the book. But that's also, even the um, actual physical book is also pretty uh, inexpensive. Krishna, Dvaipayana, Veda Vyasa, Badarayana, not Veda Vyasa. Yes, it's a general name. And these distinctions are difficult to draw. Um, in tradition, they are considered to be the same. Okay. Uh, is Brahma Sutra and Upanishad? No. Brahma Sutras are based on the Upanishads. They are aphorisms. Uh, 555 aphorisms written by, composed by. So Upanishads are not composed. They are supposed to be revealed and you see them in spiritual experience. But Brahma Sutras are an entirely philosophical work. A logical working out of the various questions which arise from the Upanishads. So three things, and three of the foundational texts are three. Whole, all Upanishads taken together called Shruti Prasthana like Katho Upanishad, for example, all of them put together is Shruti Prasthana, the foundation from the Shrutis. Brahma Sutras are Nyaya Prasthana, the foundation from the logical, foundation, philosophical foundation. And then the last one is the Gita, Smriti Prasthana, the application to you know, day-to-day life. Gita is an independent text, Brahma Sutra is an independent text, and Upanishads are a collection of independent texts. Good. Um, right somebody has pointed out there is one distinction vasanas are always pejorative that means they are taken as negative desires uh, samskaras can be good samskaras samskaras can be uh, some which trouble us which can obstruct us from enlightenment bad samskaras but vasanas nobody says good vasanas there can be good vasanas vasanas for a spiritual study and all of that but generally vasanas are used in the sense of uh, you know, worldly desires. Generally, again, you can have Shubhavasana also. Pranav says, can you clarify where the Shaiva and Shakta schools fit in, Prasthanatraya Foundation? Do only non-dualists and largely Vaishnavas trace the roots to the Vedanta, not Shaivites and Sha- Shakta? No, not necessarily, but there's a huge Shaiva Agama and Shakta Agama, a huge uh, corpus of texts which deal with uh, Shaivism and Shaktism. but Remember, there are shakta upanishads also. Um, So, the Shaivas and shaktas can very well benefit from uh, the Advaitic knowledge. They are part of one great tradition. But Shaivas and shaktas have a huge independent um, corpus of texts. But again, independent in Hinduism, everything is so interconnected. You will find what is taught in the Shaiva Agamas and Shakta uh, Agamas, the texts of the Shaiva and Shakta uh, branches, you will have the core ideas of the Upanishads already there. Yeah. So Upanishads again are the source of all spirituality in India. Even when you are, we go to the Buddhism, um, the rebellion of Buddhism against uh, Hinduism is mostly a rebellion against the Karma kanda, ritualistic portion, but not on the Jnana Kanda. I know these are controversial statements, but Swami Vivekananda was very firm on this. He says Buddha also was a teacher of Vedanta, but only in the, in the most general sense, not in the system of Advaita Vedanta. The system of Advaita Vedanta seems to be in clash, in contradiction to Buddhism. Anyway, good. So next time we will plunge into the Kata Upanishad. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ramakrishna Rupa Namastu